The following is a production of Government CIO Media. Hi, and welcome to GovCast. I'm Camille Tutti, Editor-in-Chief of Government CIO Media. And I'm Amanda Ziedet, Reporter with Government CIO Media. Today, we're talking with Molly Kane, who is the Director of Venture at DHS. We're so excited to have you on our show today, Molly. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we're particularly interested to talk to you about how a Texan entrepreneur uh, ended up in the D.C. government. That's a fun story. Um, <laughs> yeah, we love this so, story. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we love this story about how you were hired at DHS yeah. because that happened at a bar, right? It, uh, Tex-Mex restaurant. Um, it was over the course of uh, two separate meetings. So the first time, I, a delegation from Homeland Security had come to travel to Texas, and, and they do one or two of those trips a year. They brought the CIO, CTO, uh, Chief of Procurement, and a, a few other key players, and gave us a call and asked us if someone from our executive team could, at the time I was executive director of a a startup accelerator and asked if we could come and, and speak with them about the state of entrepreneurship in Texas. So I drove down from Dallas to Austin, met with them over breakfast for about two hours, and I uh, just had this excellent chemistry with the CIO at the time, Luke McCormick. And um, you, if you guys have met him, he's wonderful. He and I kept bullying each other a little bit back and forth. And I was giving a presentation uh, startup style, and it had metrics that he kept probing into and uh, asking for more evidence and, and more information and was like, who brought this guy? Who? Why is he picking on me? That I actually openly said at the table. And by the end, we just really enjoyed our conversation together. At the end, he asked me if I ever thought about being a Fed. And I said, of course not. You guys are so <laughs> boring. <laughs> and he said, will you please come outside so I can talk to you more about it? Gave me his card and said, call me if you really, like, I'm, being, I'm being serious about this conversation. And I called him a week later and he and the CTO flew down to Austin. I spent the day with them. We went through a number of technology startups and they let me engage that conversation and ask questions in front of them with the startups. And, and they did too. And I think that was an opportunity for them to see how I might do due diligence, at least in that first meeting. And then we had dinner over Tex-Mex meal. And uh, they said, we, we would love to have you. And I truly embraced their vision and did not, I'd never met federal employees that were like them before and wanted to follow them to the ends of the earth on that. So you mean that they were not boring? They were not boring, but I loved, um, I loved the energy and the passion that they were putting into wanting to change the government. And they probably were the only two people. And, and since then I've met some wonderful people, but at the time, they were the only two people that could convince me to pause my life for any amount of time to, to work in the government. So what was it exactly that made you call them back that first time? It, it stayed on my mind. And I also, I hire bosses. Um, it's very important for me as someone who loves to change things in organizations for the better. Uh, that, that can be a very stressful job, but you also need blockers. You need great leadership that support you, even when it's a little crazy. And I knew it instantly when I met him. And the fact that he appreciated some of the things that we were bantering back and forth on, I knew he was a good candidate for a good boss. 
So I, it stayed on my mind. Was this during your time at Tech Wildcatters? Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah. It, was that your start in tech? Um, my start in tech, my official start in tech was when I was uh, a vice president of communications for Comerica Bank. And I, of course, communications is not necessarily seen as a, a technical role, nor, nor does it need to be. But I hated the tools that we were using. So I ran my own personal protest against the system of document sharing that we had. And it, this was 2010 and uh, ran a SharePoint implementation, got my PMP, uh, my project management certification, and uh, ran I just passionately. You know, innovation comes out of your own personal needs sometimes. And so I implemented SharePoint in the organization for them in about an eight-month program and fell in love with solving a communications problem with great tech. And that nerded me out just enough to go check in on co-working spaces that I had never heard what, what are those? Let me go hang out in them. This was around 2013 and met a few entrepreneurs and didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, but that is the sentence I gave my boss at the time. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I've decided that this is not it. And she was extremely nervous for me because she asked me what my next move was. And I said, I have no idea. I just don't want to be here. And I need, I need to pursue something else. And so I stayed on as a consultant in that role and moved into founding my first startup and uh, did that for about 18 months and with two other co-founders. And then from there, I met the folks at Tech Wildcatters and it seemed like a, an organic move. So you have a degree in journalism. I do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so how were you able to kind of draw from what you learned in J school to when you beca- became an entrepreneur? Yeah. Um, I would actually encourage you guys to ask that question of a bunch of innovators around town because um, Suzette Kent, for instance, has a journalism degree. Federal CIO. Yes. Um, So I was so excited to hear that because to me, and I know this personally, and it's hard to prove that to the uber technical minds, um, but communications and the most bizarre connections is how the best business is done. And if you have that base foundation of communications and my first big kid job was speechwriter at Verizon. And to do that, you've got to sit in the room with the people strategizing. So around 24, 25, I was sitting with all the guys that make the decisions. I was sitting off to the side, but I was hearing every single aspect of the business. And when you are exposed to every aspect of the business, then you then you can communicate it and you know exactly who needs to know who. And if you're not in a siloed role, you, you can truly connect everything together. So um, innovation is actually seeming to be a pretty organic job transition for a lot of communicators. So there was a little bit of a culture shock, I can imagine, coming Ooh. from <laughs> not only coming from Texas to D.C., but yeah. coming from the private sector into government. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's not an enormous. I actually find a lot of comfort being in a really traditional organization. It's it's a, it's somewhat low hanging fruit because the projects are not complex in the technical side of it. They're more complex in the embracing and culture change and organizational aspects of it. And I find those challenges really fun. Um, I love finding the foxhole allies that 
uh, can work with us on that program. And I love working for leaders that want to do the same thing. So I'm a little, I'm addicted to making positive change happen. So I took this job because it was screaming challenge, obviously. Um, and that, this is an industry I hadn't tried yet, but it's very similar to banking. It's very similar to the financial industry. Not not you guys, but a lot of people in D.C. think, well, this is a federal situation and this is how federal is done. And, I'm, and I like to remind them that, no, a lot of the traditional, all the old school industries are this way. The reason the federal situation is harder is because it's there's not a lot of shareholders. There's not any financial benefit to doing something differently. So in this in this job, the most unique challenge and probably the hardest one I've come across is having to convince them it could be better with no reward at the end. And you're based in Texas, right? I am. Yeah. So do you think that gives you a different perspective in terms of innovating a government agency from the inside, not being surrounded by government every day? Yeah. And that was the intention of the guys that hired me was to never... They encouraged me to never move here until <laughs> until I really ultimately needed to. Um, we lovingly call it FedHead that um, I try to prevent myself from ever being complacent. And sometimes when, all the time, when you're around something all the time, uh, you start thinking that way. So it's important for me to be in and out and around and not just from an innovation theater kind of move of just going to Silicon Valley for two days, but living away from it, I remain intolerant of the the status quo. How is it to navigate those situations when you are dealing with people who are fed heads? Ah, there's good ones and there's bad ones. There's The good ones are the ones that acknowledge that they're in an environment that uh, is not as welcome to change. Um, the bad ones are the ones that play finite games. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the game theory of, of sorts. It's a really good book, Finite versus Infinite Games by James Carse. It's something you should read. Um, but those who play that start and stop finite game where they rely heavily on the past work that got them to the position that they're in. If someone like me comes in and is suddenly named director after I haven't been 20 years in the government, they don't trust me. Others are wondering, what is her background to have arrived there? Or why did she come here? There's a reason that that, that woman finds this interesting. So there's, there's two types of, of fed heads. And I work with the better side of them. <laughs> I usually use that. It's pretty easy to know who wants to work with me and who doesn't. So I work with the ones who do. How do you find your allies? Because you are very outspoken, not in, mm. you know, not just in real life, but on Twitter, mm -hmm. on social media, you, you say it like it is. Yeah. Um, that's actually helped quite a bit. So, um, obviously there are legalities and, you know, ethics that we all have to pay mind to out of safety precautions for us and for our work. Um, but, then there's a lot of things that people just don't do. And you spend time on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. And having a healthy conversation is not, there's not a process written that you can't have a healthy conversation. People are having them at happy hour and at the water cooler and in the office by your desk and at the cubicles. So LinkedIn has allowed for that as well. It's just a little bit more public. By doing that, I've actually found the Foxhole allies. 
I received a white paper from someone at TSA that I'd never met. I'd never heard of his name. And he's, you know, project manager in this office over here kind of thing. Uh, There's probably not a reason I would have ever run into him. He emailed me a white paper that he wrote on a weekend out of interest in changing this one aspect of an acquisition tweak that he thinks needs to be done. It was, it's very cool. I get those all the time. And they'll write me, there's, there's someone in IRS that um, I'm trying to help on, you know, arranging a mastermind group essentially to help him solve a problem that he came to us with. And um, I don't work for the IRS, but that's not my, my mission is not to only do things for Homeland Security. It is let's change. And it doesn't matter what rank, who you are, what your background is. If you want to be part of it, then done. And LinkedIn has actually enabled me to find those people. Has a tweet or a LinkedIn post that you've shared or posted ever sparked a thread of conversation or um, not backlash per se, but an interesting conversation on social media that you wouldn't have expected to have on that platform? Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, I'm probably more active. The first year in the role was a lot of learning and a lot of understanding what the environment was. And even new feds like myself are intimidated by the billions of procedures and process and social rules and all the all the things you should do and shouldn't do and aren't allowed and legal is going to call you. And, um, you know, a lot of, we call those red laws and blue laws. Red laws certainly are ones we have to honor every single day, but there's a lot of blue laws and a lot of things that people intentionally hold themselves back on simply because they don't understand or they're assuming that it's not right. So whenever I started writing on there, I think it, it gave a, a few other people comfort in being outspoken. So we will have a lot of conversations about acquisition. Um, there's a lot of us in that middle layer that, you know, you see leaders standing up on stages all the time and talking about we should fix acquisition. Well, our level is talking about, okay, we're done talking about that. Let's now we need to put a group together and figure it out. Like, how much more are we going to have to talk about it before we actually change that? So that has enabled, I hate using the word hack because it's seen so negatively around here, but hacking a system in a legal manner has to be done. And that layer and those conversations, like what you're talking about on Twitter and LinkedIn, those identify the people that are hungry to, to be involved. So that's been, that's been cool. And speaking of Twitter, you and I have bonded over <laughs> our de- dislike for manuals. Oh, and, fr- yes. and those of you who don't know what a manual is, it's an all-male panel, sometimes mm-hmm. an even a- a- an all-male event. So how do you tackle that situation? We, we both see this happening pretty often here in D.C. and outside of D.C. as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess you could also say a department with all men that are in the leadership team. That could be the proverbial mantle. And um, one of the best things about social media and business networking online is we a lot of people think the same way. And these tools are enabling us to realize that we're not alone. So that's been the favorite part. And that's why you and I get along so well. And what's even better is that on social media, they'll post pictures of the mantles. So you know there, there's evidence. And uh, it's inexcusable in 2018 that you can't find a woman in tech 
at any level, at any expertise or anything, that's inexcusable. And it's not, it's not an affirmative action ask. It is just, uh, we're more than half the population, I think. Right? What is, what's the stat there? I don't know. I'm not a math person. We have to but at least be half. We <laughs> at least have to be half. We're, we all have a journalism background, so we don't do math <laughs> very well. I, I say I write for a living. <laughs> it's yeah. not the math part. Um, but I certainly don't see 40% or 30% of a woman up on that stage either. And um, they, they should be trying harder to invite women to the table. And I, I do preach that from the highest of heights of we can do a lot for ourselves as women in tech and women in the startup world and women in the federal space, but we won't get it done if men don't invite us to the rooms that we don't even know the conversations are happening in. So the mantles kind of incites that conversation as well. How do you think we go about changing that culture and government? I mean, in general, men are more present in the government than women are yeah. tech or not. So how, how do you think that starts? You find the men that don't see gender. I only work for men who want to spend time with me in a, in a working space and working manner, and they don't see my gender as a handicap. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of guys in leadership positions who, it, whether they'll admit it or not, even to themselves, they see us differently. And, um, you know, we should be the people in the room that are taking notes instead of directing the strategy. And uh, I don't work for those guys. So we also have to invite them. So there was, there's several panels recently or several events that I'll even bring guys that have supported me in my career and... I think all of us at this table have been promoted or assisted or supported or mentored by a man. And the conversation is not women are going to do it themselves. We certainly are being more outspoken about it, but we have to have them involved. And uh, celebrating the ones that are great at it is probably one of the biggest ways we could do that. I think it's interesting. I can definitely relate to that because one of my mentors is is a guy yeah. and he's been the most influential He's helped open many doors for me. So mm -hmm. I want to, I'm just curious about your mentors. Who are they? Oh yeah. So I collect good humans is my. <laughs> That's an awesome quote. Yeah. <laughs> I, I collect good humans and I, because I, I don't look at a job. Um, I look at the challenges of it and I look at who I'm going to be working for and do I, do I appreciate them enough to support them and make them look good? Then, then yes, then I need to work for them. So, um, I keep them and they were, they were at my wedding a few weeks ago. I had three different bosses in the room. One of them is Scott Howitt, MGM international. Uh, he's over in Vegas and he's the chief information security officer. I deeply admire his brain. I worked for him 10 years ago. And the, the th reason that we're still, we're now friends is because he, in, he included me. I went broke going to sushi lunches, but I went because he invited me. And I knew he was hanging out with people that I wanted to, to know and be around. Uh, you know, it's Sheryl Sandberg's quote. If you get offered a seat on a rocket ship, then just don't ask which seat it is. Just go. And uh, the, the men, the male mentors that I have had have invited me on rocket ships. And I'll just go. I don't, I don't care what you're asking me to do. And I'll go broke eating sushi. And I don't like sushi. <laughs> but I'll go and I'll pretend that I eat sushi because I want to be around you. And so Scott is uh, an amazing guy. 
Um, my boss at Comerica Bank in Dallas, um, Mark, he, he blocker is an understatement. The when they lay on it's a horrible analogy to use, but when they lay on the bomb for me and you see that, you actually get to see them suffer and you don't want them to, but when you see them suffer on behalf of the the goals that you're trying to achieve, uh, I want to know them forever. I like what you said about rocket ships. Yeah. And I've been taught the same thing. When you see an opportunity or when you get an opportunity, mm-hmm. you don't think about it. Just say yes. Whether you think you can do the job or not, you just say yes. Right. And following that has definitely led to some great career opportunities for me. I just blindly say yes. Yeah. Well, what do they say? That your gut has more sensors than your brain? Um I think that's scientific, but again, I'm a journalism major. So um, I go with my gut on my career uh, because my career is not a job for me. It is my, it's not, and it's not my lifeblood from a salary perspective. It's my lifeblood for where I find joy and challenges and growth for myself. So like you, I don't, I don't take jobs where I can do every single bullet. And I think people are undermining their, their future when they do that. So if it sounds interesting and the person driving the rocket ship is worth it, I'm in. These topics are a lot what similar to what we noticed you would write about as a contributor for Forbes, mm-hmm. career leadership advice. Uh, along those lines, are there are there anything is there any advice that you wish you knew 5 10 years ago career leadership wise that you would provide today to someone maybe nervous about entering the government space or the private sector space or tech in general? Especially with this new innovation space, this is a relatively new career for people. If it's interesting to someone, anything, if anything is interesting, that's worked for me is to follow that. So if you look at my resume, it's a lot of different industries, a lot of different jobs, and I have an organic trail of some connection for all of it, but all of it is attached by curiosity. So um, if it's interesting to me, I will go and do it. I don't have, I used to have a plan that was about 10, 15 years ago. I thought planning was a good route for a career. And then I stopped doing that because if you do that, then you're actually pursuing yesterday's thoughts. And I want to make a decision on today's awareness. So I would recommend that for anybody. Um, and as well for the innovation space, there's a lot of people, including me, and I used to do this for myself, is you put yourself in a bucket. Um, I'm a technical person. We've, we've already done it here. I'm not a math person. And, um, you know, to that, I can, I can use the, the case that's happening right now is there's a lot of conversation. How many data scientists might we have in the government currently already employed that have no idea that that is a career? And that's a skill set that they have and they have never pursued it and no one has ever encouraged them to do something weird and different because a data scientist is probably a pretty risk-averse person that loves numbers and sitting and doing the same thing. But uh, we could find them and that would increase the, the talent in our already existing workforce. So having curiosity in your career is probably the number one thing that I wish I knew to appreciate I thought I was an alien when like 10 years ago, I still kind of am, but, um, 10 years ago, I thought I was wrong 
And now there's conversations like Adam Grant's book Originals. I didn't I didn't read it because it was me. I don't need to read a biography of how I think at work, but I do hand that book to people who are confused about why I approach work this way. So that book made me comfortable that ah, oh, okay. Now every now people like me are coming out. <laughs> <laughs> and the change agent, I know that's kind of a buzzword these days, but that's a real thing. If you feel like you're wired that way, go with it. And I, and I went with it, but I went with it with a lot of people in my personal life being frustrated with me. And Molly, why can't you just do nine to five and stop being so frustrated at work? And I'm like, that's what I'm made to do. <laughs> so yeah, trusting, trusting that gut. Our guts are pretty powerful. You talk about yourself like having this identity. So what are some of the aspects that make up that identity? You said you're curious, mm -hmm. you like to focus on problem solving, and it sounds like you're a cheerleader for others as well to kind of bring them into this space. I've gotten really comfortable over the years, and I think um, if you study anything, I wish I was as financially successful as Richard Branson, but if you study guys like him, I, where he grew up with learning disabilities. And there's, there's a certain type of person that struggles on the front end of life. That's not like the high school quarterback prom queen, like everything was handed to them. And, and that's not to say for the quarterbacks and prom queens that are listening to this, but um, when you have a little bit of difficulty early on, you get really personal, personally aware fast. And so I learned about myself and why I was different And certainly struggled with why do I not like, why do I not agree with that? Why don't I want to have a nine to five job and be comfortable sitting in the cubicle all day? Why I see 400 other people around me doing that. Why don't, why don't I do that? Yeah. When you start to get comfortable with who you are and how you're wired, it's magnificent. And then you can actually direct your career and your life that way. So I've spent a lot of time figuring myself out And that also makes me really personally aware. Um, when I get into an argument with someone at work or personally, I sit there and wonder, what was my role in getting you to talk to me that way? It's made me, it's frustrating to be the only aware one in certain conversations, but then the rest of the time, I can modify my behavior the next time. And uh, that's been extremely helpful in a frustrating career. And I would say innovation can be extremely frustrating. You hit a lot of walls, but um, that awareness has been powerful. Did you realize that when you were young that you were different? And what made you realize that? Yes, for sure. So I'm an ADD kid. It's named a disorder. So there's an assumption that it's a, a broken wire in there. But I learned probably like as soon as I got into the workforce, it was a gift. And it gave me this extremely different way of approaching things. It's really hard to explain how I arrive at answers to a really logical operational person. And that's something I still haven't mastered. But um, when I use the words trust me at work, uh, the right bosses are like, oh my God, okay, fine. Um, and those are the, And that's why I really enjoy working with them. But yeah, I learned that pretty early on. And I have amazing parents who knew that I had this artistic twist with um, a power hungry career dream. And that kind of merged into where I am right now. 
It must be challenging in the technical field to not always be able to explain to somebody how you got from A to B when <laughs> someone technical probably wants that description. Tech, yeah, I I do like to, I love working with uh, brilliant nerds that are willing to get feedback. They're like the best hybrid animal ever. So I've worked with CISOs and, and in the IT groups all the time. I've been an embedded translator is what I like to say. And even when I was in communications, that was... That was my favorite thing is to make complicated things easier. And I can make your complicated things easier, but I spit out even more complicated things and a lot of people can't translate them. So that's that's what I'm working on right now. Um, but yeah, I love knowing a little bit about a lot of things. That's, that's my favorite thing. And that's why uh, I've pursued this innovation angle is because I need to know a little bit about blockchain and cloud and sensors and AI and machine learning, not enough to spend all my time there and go all the way into the rabbit holes, just enough to know that this guy's got to talk to this guy. And, and that's how, that's how I spend most of my days. So before we go, we just want to ask if there's anything particular you're working on right now, and although you don't like to plan anything upcoming <laughs> or in the future. <laughs> what I'm working on right now is um, I was originally hired to bring and introduce great technology from outside the DC space to our guys. And, and I know this, and you guys know this, there's no shortage of great tech out there across the nation, all over the world. There is a, an enormous shortage of a cultural innovation ecosystem that can take it. So that I, I started switching our direction of our group uh, when I realized I have to stop introducing new tech to these guys until we can actually digest it and utilize it. So um, we've done quite a bit of work around executive immersion and awareness of you know how... How can they help amplify that effort? How can we get to more implementation? Um, it's not a it's not a secret that we want to implement and modernize more and faster and better and cheaper. So it's it's a cultural conversation. It is not let's do more agile. As I I'm going to get punched in the face for that. But it's not about agile. It's about exposure and awareness and understanding of what process can do we need to target and change so that we can get these guys in there. Molly, thank you so much for stopping by today. We've learned a lot about you and what your passion truly is. Yeah, this conversation was really fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, ladies, for having me. This was fun. This episode is sponsored by Lumina. Lumina's mission is to use AI systems to protect the world. To learn more about the company, visit its website at luminaanalytics.com. So one of my biggest takeaways from our talk with Molly was to work with people who, in general, do not see gender as a handicap to your position and the really inspiring work that you can do in an agency or company. And I think that her approach to her career and especially her role at DHS has been so inspiring. And it's people like Molly who really drive change in government. They are outsiders who come in and try to drive change in a positive way. And they do that by engaging other people, whether it's outside the government or inside the government. 
And she engages specifically on Twitter and LinkedIn often, which she said has sparked some really cool conversation that she didn't think would happen in terms of acquisition in government, which was really interesting. I especially appreciated that she said she collects good humans, which means that she always has people around her who can help her open doors for her, whether it's on a professional level or whether it's just to make an introduction to their network. I also took took away a note she said about training the workforce that you already have. And she's mentioned something about you might not know you have a data scientist in your agency unless you start to bring those kinds of abilities and technologies into the workplace. So actually, our, during our inaugural episode, Jose Arrieta mentioned the same thing with his blockchain program at HHS. You know, they didn't hire anyone new and just educated and trained the workforce they had. That's super important in government as well as they try to find and sustain unique IT talent. Govcast is a production of Government CIO Media. It's produced by Tracy Madigan and edited by Rob Ford. Our theme music is provided by Big Hoax. Our executive producer is Michael Hoffman. If you're interested in sponsoring Govcast, you can email Andy Andrews at randrews at governmentcio.com. I'm Camille Tudi. And I'm Amanda Ziede. Thank you for joining us today. <laughs>